Humanity is growing and connecting. Tomorrow's world needs more energy from more places. But to find our net zero future, we must overcome the natural constraints of many new energy sources. This is the Energy Transition Solutions Podcast, where we look at the energy challenges of modern life and the innovators finding solutions. Join us for a low-carbon, high-energy conversation with your host, Joe Battier. This views of the host are his own and should not be viewed as those of any business, corporation, or government entity. Hello, and welcome to the Energy Transition Solutions Podcast brought to you by AWS Energy. I'm your host, Joe Battier. This is the show where we bring you low-carbon, high-energy stories from the people solving the energy challenges of modern life. I'm here today with John Kotek, Senior Vice President for Policy Development and Public Affairs at the Nuclear Energy Institute. As the name implies, NEI is a policy organization of the nuclear energy and technologies industry. NEI promotes the use and growth of nuclear energy through efficient operations and effective policy. Now, for many of you out there, nuclear power is a bit of a boogeyman. Today, I want all of us to be educated on what nuclear power is so that we can have an informed discussion as we discuss the future of energy and the different ways to get to net zero. With that, John, thank you for joining me on the show today. If you would please share with me and the audience your background and a quick introduction to the Nuclear Energy Institute. Super. Thanks, Joe. Uh, So I'm a nuclear engineer by training, been in the sector for most of my 30 plus year career, Uh, spent most of it actually in the federal government system, the energy department and the national laboratories, Uh, joined NEI about five and a half years ago. Uh, NEI, as you mentioned, is a policy organization, a a trade association, as we uh, call it here in in D.C. So we engage in a lot of advocacy, both on the policy and the regulatory side, including in addition to what what I'll say is uh, telling the nuclear narrative, explaining why nuclear energy is so important. Now, we've got north of 300 members, including the big utilities that run nuclear plants, but also the nuclear plant vendors, suppliers. Uh, companies engage in nuclear fuel supply, as well as a lot of uh, universities, national laboratories, um, law firms, and others uh, across, I think we're up to 17 different countries now, uh, all companies that uh, have activities in the civil nuclear energy sector here in the U.S. Thank you for that introduction. And I would like to start with a baseline. So very basic definition What is nuclear energy? Yeah, so nuclear energy is the energy that we derive from the atomic nucleus. So in the case of the nuclear energy we hear, we use here in the United States and is is used commercially around the world, that means capturing energy that is released when atoms are split. Now, principally what we're talking about is uranium atoms uh, that, that we use in nuclear fuel. As you might remember from your high school chemistry or physics classes, uh, there are different isotopes of the elements that exist in nature. Same thing is true for for, uh, uranium. When we mine uranium out of the ground, whether that's here in the U.S. and Canada or around the world, the uranium that is dug out of the ground is only about seven-tenths of one percent of the 
uh, isotope uranium-235. That's the stuff you want in your nuclear fuel. And so we first have to mine and convert that material so it can be enriched up to about 5% uranium-235. And that, that uh, material is then cast into very hard ceramic uranium oxide pellets about the size of the tip of your finger. Those uh, pellets are put into what we call fuel cladding, long metal tubes, say 12 or 14 feet long, that are uh, put into bundles and put into a nuclear reactor. Uh, in the reactor, uh, those the uranium atoms in those uh, fuel rods are caused to split in a controlled way that releases a large amount of energy. That energy in the form of heat is used to uh, generate steam, which is then used to drive a steam turbine. So once you get past the steam uh, generation part uh, of the, the nuclear cycle, it looks a lot like you'd, th you'd think about a traditional fossil fuel plant in terms of how a nuclear power plant works. I should note that the, the uh, energy content of the fuel is extremely high. Nuclear power has a very high, what we call fuel density or energy density. So a uranium uh, fuel assembly will stay in a nuclear reactor for about five years before it has to be removed and replaced. Uh, and for that, for that, uh, among other reasons, uh, nuclear is a very efficient way of generating electricity from a, a natural resource and a land use perspective. That's really interesting, highlighting the fuel density and a lot of the same concepts, a lot of what you were talking about, sound very similar, as you point out, traditional fire-powered gas-fired powered boilers that are generating electricity through some type of steam turbine spinning cycle. Mm -hmm. What what are some of the differences? I would imagine since we're talking about radioactive fuel, that's what people get scared about. How is that different than a traditional coal-fired power plant or some other boiler system? Yeah, so certainly when, when it comes to a nuclear reactor, because you're you're dealing with uh, radioactive materials, you have to ensure that both you know workers and the public and the environment are protected from uh, any radiation hazard. And so the fuel itself is inside a, a metal tube. That's that's a uh, barrier of protection, uh, you know, from what we call fission product release. So when when the uranium atoms split, they tend to split into two smaller atoms. We refer to those as fission products. Uh, and you want to keep those retained in the fuel. That's you know, largely what nuclear safety is about is, you know, by and large, keep your, keep your fuel intact or keep your fuel, fuel where it's supposed to be. So first it's inside these tubes. And then the, the, uh, the fuel itself is in something we call uh, a pressure vessel, containment vessel, uh, that is you know, many inches thick, typically stainless steel. That will sit inside what we call a containment building. Uh, for example, you may be familiar with the large domes that you see around nuclear power plants. That's there to uh, both protect the, the reactor from hazards from the outside, but also uh, to ensure that uh, anything released you know, would stay on the inside in the, the you know, very rare case of, uh, of something going wrong. So you've got these multiple layers of protection there, to, again, to ensure that both the workers and the public and the environment are, are uh, protected from anything that might go wrong inside the reactor. I will point out, you know, when you look on a life cycle basis, uh, it's it's w well demonstrated that nuclear energy has among the lowest, if not the lowest, both worker and public health and safety impacts. 
Uh, and that's a record of which we're awfully proud and fr- frankly, one that we could uh, intend to continue building on and even improving with the next generation of nuclear reactors that I'm sure we'll talk about later. Yes. Speaking of next generation reactors and kind of where we are today, where, I I guess, taking a step back, I, I have not been aware of any new power plants being put online. I have not been aware of any real advances in nuclear power. I feel like the only thing that people talk about is nuclear fusion. And it sounds like here we're talking about fission or the the splitting of atoms. Is that a, I guess, is that true? Are we kind of, was the heyday of nuclear behind us and we're just kind of trudging along or or what's going on with the nuclear industry and, and advancement? Yeah. No, in, in fact, we really are on the cusp of the next big wave of nuclear power plant development, uh, I think, here in the in the U.S. and in large parts of the world. But let me take a step back and explain. You know, we've, been, we've been operating nuclear power reactors in the U.S. since the late 1950s. Really amazing when you think about it. The first uh, electricity generating reactors came online in the early 50s. And by the end of the decade, we, are, we already had commercial units in operation. Uh, globally, we've got about 440 nuclear power reactors running a little over 20% of those are here in the U.S. We've got 92 nuclear power plants in the U.S. generating just shy of 20% of U.S. electricity. Importantly, uh, nuclear energy remains the largest source uh, by far of carbon-free generation uh, here in the United States uh, and in Europe as well. Uh, what's, What's happened in the U.S. is we built a lot of plants back in the 70s and 80s uh, and then got to a, a place where we didn't build as many anymore. There have been a handful that have come online you know, over the last couple of decades, and there are two more under construction in the state of Georgia right now. Uh, you know, but, but by and large, the, the nuclear industry in the U.S. has been you know, focused on both operating the plants we have today and in developing a next generation of nuclear power plant uh, that can be deployed in the U.S. and around the world. While we've uh, gone into hiatus on a new build, largely, other nations have moved forward. And so China, for example, is rapidly increasing the number of nuclear reactors it operates to the point where, you know, sometime over the next decade or two, folks expect the Chinese to pass the U.S. in terms of having the largest fleet of nuclear power plants uh, in operation. But, you know, countries like France, for example, uh, have built quite a few. Uh, they've got 50-something in operation now, generating about 70% of their electricity. Other nations, like South Korea, for example, uh, built quite a few as, as we were uh, not in a building phase here in the U.S. The Japanese, particularly back in the, in the 80s and 90s, were building quite a, quite a number of nuclear power plants. More recently, nations like the UAE uh, in the Middle East have, uh, are in the process of starting up a total of four uh, South Korean supplied nuclear power plants uh, that will, uh, w- when all is said and done, provide a, s- a significant share of, of that country's uh, generation. So there's a lot going on in other parts of the world, and there's a lot more interest that has cropped up here in in recent years due to concern about 
carbon and climate, and even more so in the last couple of months as the Russians have assaulted Ukraine and uh, nations have started paying a lot more attention to who their energy partners are, uh, as well as to where they get their energy from. So while in the U.S. you haven't seen much in the way of new construction, there's been quite a bit going on around the world, and we're on the verge of seeing quite a bit more here over the next decade or two. Very interesting. The one question I have is from those, I guess the first power plants coming online in the 50s, and you said 70s and 80s were large power plants. What kind of differences are there between those specific power plants versus this next generation that we're talking about? Where where are we advancing the technology? Sure. So, yeah, the reactors that we have in operation today here in the U.S., and, and this, is, this is also true for most of the reactors around the world, uh, they're water-cooled reactors, and they operate using something we, we call uh, – you know, a, a thermal n- neutron spectrum. I'll explain a, a little bit more about that. Uh, but the, so the reactors we use today are principally one of two types. W- one type is what we call a boiling water reactor. That's a, a system in which uh, the coolant in the reactor is allowed to boil as it uh, as it passes through the reactor core, and that steam is used to drive a turbine. The other type is called a pressurized water reactor. And that type, you, you keep the water under high pressure so it doesn't boil, but then you have a, an intermediate heat loop where you're, you're uh, taking that high temperature, high pressure water uh, and letting it transfer heat to some lower pressure, lower temperature water that does boil. And then you use that steam to, to drive a turbine. So you'll hear about, uh, we call them PWRs and BWRs, pressurized and boiling water reactors. The new generation of technology uh, includes some of these uh, water-cooled reactors. So, for example, companies like NuScale, uh, GE Hitachi, uh, Holtec are developing water-cooled SMRs, small modular reactors. The idea behind those reactors is to take what we've learned from 60-plus years of operating commercial nuclear power plants and incorporate new features that we think will lead to uh, a more efficient plant to both construct and to operate. So for one example, you know, today's plants rely a lot on things like, you know, pumps and valves and other systems to ensure plant safety. You, you look at something like the new scale design, they've incorporated physical attributes, characteristics like natural heat convection or, you know, natural flow or gravity as a way of ensuring plant safety. So you don't have to rely on an active system to ensure that the plant stays safe in, in you know, the event something goes wrong. You've got these natural physical phenomena that are going to ensure that the plant stays safe. As a re- result, uh, you also have a system that's less complicated, so easier to, to build, easier to operate. So you, you, you'll see advancements in the SMR space uh, that take advantage of, again, what we've learned from 60 plus years of operating these plants. Some of the other so-called advanced reactors use uh, different types of coolant, for example. So you'll hear about molten salt reactors or liquid metal cooled reactors or uh, high temperature gas cooled reactors. 
some of which actually operate on a different, we call neutron energy spectrum. So some of them are what we call fast reactors. In a, in a thermal reactor, what happens is the water in the reactor core slows down the neutrons that are used to drive the fission reaction. So I talked earlier about splitting uranium atoms. The way you split a uranium atom is you cause a neutron to collide with it. Uh, and uh, some of the, the uh, uranium atoms in, in, uh, in these collision reactions will split and they will not just create fission products, but they'll also cause say two or three more neutrons to be released. And those can go on to split other uranium atoms. And that gives you what we call the chain reaction. In some of these uh, some of these other s systems, you, you don't have water in the in the reactor core that's slowing the neutrons down, so the neutrons re retain a higher energy level. Those types of reactors can actually use a wider range of nuclear fuel materials. So, in addition to uranium, you can also use you know, plutonium and and other elements that uh, uh, may have been generated from. Uh, generated in existing nuclear fuel and, and maybe, for example, waste products that would have to be disposed if you were only using thermal reactors. But if you had fast reactors, you might be able to use those waste products as, as a fuel. So there's interest in uh, some of these types of fast reactors as well uh, coming online, not just for their own, you know, their ability, again, to, to be safer systems because of, for example, the very large heat capacity that a liquid sodium reactor has, right? So you've, you, the sodium can absorb more heat than water. And so uh, you have an extra margin of safety in a system like that. Uh, but you've also got the ability to maybe use some materials that, that may be waste for today's reactors that could be fuel for our next generation of reactors. And also some of these designs have the ability to operate at higher temperatures than today's reactors. And so by, you know, having a reactor that can go to, you know, five, six, seven, eight hundred degrees centigrade, for example, you might start looking at applications of nuclear beyond electricity production. But you, you could look at nuclear as a way of replacing other uh, need for industrial process heat that's currently met by fossil fuels. And so a lot of companies are now looking at new nuclear particularly some of these so-called advanced reactor systems as a way of decarbonizing parts of our energy system beyond the electric grid. Thank you for pointing out those great benefits of these new technologies. And I, everything you were talking about, I think were ultimately they were pointing to the greater efficiency, greater safety. One thing that I was also hearing in the back of my mind was energy security you mentioned Russia earlier, yep. and as you're talking about being able to use a wide array of fuel sources and now incorporating potential waste products of of the existing the existing power plants, now being able to be fuel. That also sounds like a a greater push for energy security. Uh, and of course, that's what what I'm thinking is. And I'm sure that you always get asked this question, how does nuclear help energy security? So I guess, what is your response to that? How does this ultimately, what's what's the correct answer to how nuclear power would provide energy security? Yeah, so nuclear energy has the potential uh, to provide a, an extremely high degree of energy security because we can do it all ourselves or we can, you, we in conjunction with our allies 
uh, have all the capacity and all the resource that we need to develop a highly secure, reliable energy system uh, built around nuclear power. So at at the moment, uh, we do have a couple of challenges in that space. I talked earlier about mining uranium and then converting and having to enrich it before you can make nuclear fuel. There are a couple of uh, steps in that process that at the moment are reliant on capacity that exists in Russia. Uh, And so, for example, Russia controls a little, roughly half of the uranium enrichment capability that exists around the world. They also uh, control a significant share of the uh, uranium conversion uh, step that that's also required in nuclear fuel manufacturing. So, um, you know, w- with the, the Russian assault on Ukraine, there is a heightened interest here in the U.S. on uh, onshoring uh, some more of that capability or working with our allies to ensure that we're you know, no longer exposed to the potential for uh, disruption of supply uh, because you know we're working with with uh, you know the Russians or other unreliable energy partners. There's there's nothing you know technological uh, about this that says the, the U.S. can't do it. For years, we were the leader, for example, in in global uranium mining and conversion and enrichment, uh, as well as the final fuel manufacturing step. But you know, as as we uh, you know saw more and more capacity brought online around the world. What happened was, you know, for example, we started relying more on uh, Russia as a source of, of fuel supply, both for economic reasons and because it was non-proliferation uh, uh, benefit by ensuring that the Russians were using, you know, that we that we were taking material off of the Russian market that was helping ensure that uh, material was was you know not misdirected for improper use. In fact, uh, for 20 years, we had a program in the U.S. called Megatons to Megawatts, where the U.S. government encouraged uh, U.S. utilities to purchase uranium from Russia uh, that was derived from blended down nuclear warheads. So in a nuclear warhead, the uranium enrichment level will be up over 90% of the uranium-235 I talked about earlier, far, far higher than what's used in a nuclear reactor. And that's you know one of the reasons a nuclear reactor can't have an explosion like a nuclear weapon. Uh, but what we were doing was we were paying Russia to take uh, uranium out of their nuclear warheads and blend it down to nuclear fuel grade, and then we would use it in our reactors. So you know, huge non-proliferation benefit. For a period of about almost 20 years, we had about 10% of the electricity generated in the U.S. actually coming from uranium that was once in Russian warheads. Really, really incredible non-proliferation benefit. But as a result, we let, you know, programs like that, we let our capabilities atrophy here in the U.S. Now that the, you know, situation looks different and folks understand the importance of ensuring energy security, uh, we're working with policymakers in the government and the Congress, along with the industry, to figure out how we're going to establish a reliable, secure fuel supply between us and our allies here in the near term. Now, aside from those, you know, the, the small number of uh, current vulnerabilities, when it comes to whether it's uranium mining, uranium fuel supply, reactor construction, fabrication, supply, service, uh, the operation steps, everything that goes into running a nuclear power plant, uh, we, we uh, are world leaders in uh, and, and will remain that way going forward. Uh, so 
when it comes to assuring uh, energy security, a lot of nations, for example, in Central and Eastern Europe right now are, are very concerned about their energy security because they're currently very reliant on Russian natural gas, for example, uh, as well as coal and, and even some uranium uh, fuel supply there as well. They want to stop doing business with the Russians. They've you know, proven themselves an unreliable energy partner. China's kind of in the same uh, basket. Folks look at China and they say, would the, you know, they don't want to get into a relationship where they're relying on the Chinese for a significant share of their energy supply. So these countries that were formerly thinking about working with Russia or China uh, on nuclear power projects, many of them are now turning away and looking again to the U.S. and looking to these advanced reactors that we're developing as the choice they want to make for securing their own energy future. That's important because when you work with another country to build a commercial nuclear power plant in that country, you start what can be a century-long relationship with that nation. You think about you know the, the 10 years or so it takes to you know, license and build a new nuclear power plant, and then the 60 to 80 years you'd run the plant, and then another uh, you know, 5, 10 years, whatever, on the back end to dismantle the plant. That You're, you're talking about roughly a, a century of engagement, not just on nuclear power plant operations itself, but on physical security, cybersecurity, nuclear uh, material security, uh, in a wide range of other areas where you want the U.S. to be in the lead and you want the U.S. to be the one that's setting the global norms and the global practices. And so uh, we're seeing really strong support from our government and from prior uh, presidential administrations for helping U.S. firms compete and win in global nuclear export markets. And the opportunity for U.S. Uh, vendors is just uh, growing uh, greater with this increased emphasis on energy security, both in the U.S. and abroad. Mm. I really like everything you said there about how this creates energy security, increases that relationship between countries and between different groups and and creates a a long-term beneficial mutually beneficial relationship that can then be built upon and it gives that opportunity to provide that energy security that is that is long-term one thing you mentioned in there though besides the century-long relationship you would have within that partnership is that it sounds like it is still going to take a little bit of time to build. It's still going to take a little bit of time to get everything in place. And right now, this being the Energy Transition Solutions podcast, focused on decarbonization, focused on on how we're going to get to that that new energy future. It One thing that I've always been concerned about with nuclear is the timeline. Earlier, you also mentioned Georgia, and I feel like Georgia and the two power plants being built there, I feel like that's been a very long time. And it just feels like how can nuclear be part of the solution if it's if we haven't really started building anything yet except for those two power plants? It, so a, a couple of observations there. Uh, one, these new, whether it's the small modular reactors or the advanced reactors, uh, are being designed to be more uh, efficient to construct, you know, both from an economic perspective and from a time perspective. 
for example, a, a lot of what's currently done in the field you know, at the plant site can be done in a factory setting for, for some of these reactor types. That should allow for much greater uh, learning effects and for these new plants to move down the cost and schedule curve faster than, than what we've seen uh, with some of the larger plants. When it comes to these larger plants, though, what we found is that in other nations, if they've got a sustained program of new construction in a stable regulatory environment, other nations have found uh, that they're able to dramatically improve their ability to build new nuclear power plants with experience to the point where, you know, it, again, in the, the you go back 20 years or so, the Japanese were routinely building new large nuclear reactors in under four years. South Koreans the same way. So there's no reason that we can't get to that sort of performance again, but it's going to take some repetition. I think these uh, SMRs and advanced reactors are going to lend themselves, again, to moving down that cost and schedule curve even faster. But you know, the, the, the opportunity exists uh, to do that. And other nations have shown that it can be done. And even the U.S. back in the 70s, we, we were very efficient at building nuclear power plants back then. So there's no reason we can't do that. Uh, what it is going to take is it's going to take some policy incentives that are going to provide the demand signal and give investors confidence that there's going to be a market uh, for these products. And so, for example, you look at how wind and solar have come down the cost and schedule curve so well over the last decade plus. It started with investments in the technology. And as a former Department of Energy employee, I can point to you know a lot of things that DOE did right to help get the technology to a place where it was ready to be commercialized. But then you had state and federal policies, things like renewable portfolio standards at the state level, investment or production tax credits at the federal level that gave investors confidence that there was money to be made in these businesses. And they went off and they invested in the manufacturing technology or in you know, the permitting or the construction capability or you know, whatever element of the project uh, supply chain you want to talk about and made it better. And as a result, you know, new wind projects are selling their power for a third or a quarter of what they were a decade ago. So solar is more like a tenth. So we've seen how smart policy can can couple with uh, smart R&D investments to get to a place where technologies can uh, be brought to market faster and at, at lower cost. We've got to try the same thing f for new nuclear. Right? And we're encouraging Congress to enact similar uh, incentives and other policy tools to help nuclear enjoy the same benefits that other clean energy technologies have enjoyed. And the last thing I'll mention uh, in, in this space is if you don't build new nuclear and you don't have that firm, clean generation uh, that nuclear you know, can provide around the clock for 18 to 24 months at a time, you know, that, that's how long a typical nuclear plant runs before it has to shut down to refuel. If you don't have that on your system, you're going to need a whole lot more wind, a whole lot more solar, and a whole lot more long-distance transmission to tie it all together. I encourage your listeners to check out a report called From Ambition to Reality that was uh, put together by uh, Worley in, in cooperation with the folks at Princeton's Clean Energy Program. And it looked at a couple of different scenarios. And what it found was that if you don't have nuclear or something else that's firm and clean, you wind up having to build a whole lot more, you know, four to six times as much 
onshore wind, solar, and long-distance transmission. And if you want to talk about something that takes a long time, yes, nuclear projects in the U.S. have taken a long time, but look at transmission. All right. If you're relying on, if you're if you're looking away from nuclear and instead relying on the ability to build a massive expansion of long distance transmission in the U.S., I think you're going to find yourself running into the same sorts of schedule challenges uh, that you talked about with nuclear. So I think our best bet is to ensure that we're pursuing all of these pathways. But nuclear can help avoid a whole lot more overinvestment in these in these other resources again whether it's renewable generation or uh, or energy storage or transmission to a point where you you wind up with not just a more reliable system but a more affordable system if you have firm clean generation from nuclear as opposed to relying on just renewables plus storage and and transmission yeah i think that's a really great point that transmission lines that's something that we don't really think about and even here in texas i i the only story that I know that is even relatable is the the fast track railway that's supposed to be built from Houston to Dallas. And that has been talked about for over 10, maybe even 15 years now. And the number one issue is getting the the landowners to agree to either sell the property or or give give right of ways. Well, and I would imagine it would be it would be just as hard for transmission lines. And then not to mention, as you point out, the four or five times the capacity that you need because you're dealing with wind and solar and not a firm, reliable baseload power. Well, just so I think back to, to uh, the Department of Energy and in a past life, I, I worked on uh, land use siting uh, projects, including a couple of long distance transmission lines uh, one of which was named as a priority by the Obama administration, I think in 2011, for fast-track siting approval. And here we sit more than 10 years later, and of the seven projects that were given this fast-track authorization, if you look at the combined line miles that were proposed under those seven projects, less than 15% have been built, right? And more than a decade has passed. So again, not that we shouldn't pursue this sort of opportunity, but to rely on that as, as the only way forward, I think is a real mistake. And I think nuclear has a huge role to play uh, in helping get to this affordable, reliable, cleaner energy system. Yes, absolutely. And I think that you've made a, a great case and have helped me understand better and have helped hopefully all of our listeners understand better the the safety aspect, the reliability aspect, the energy security aspect, and having power there on site for for months, if not years, in a very small footprint. So thank you very much for for clarifying those and, and helping all of us understand what has has seemed like something that is scary, probably for most of us. With that, I want to transition into my final questions. These are the questions I ask all of my guests. The first one being, what is a favorite book of yours that you would recommend? You know, so I've got a lot of favorites. One that I'm reading right now uh, is uh, – it's a bit wonky. It's called 100 Supreme Court Cases Everyone Should Know. I'm reading this because my son is in law school and he always comes home talking about these Supreme Court cases. And, of course, with all the recent attention on the court, uh, it seemed like a great thing to pick up and read. 
so I would uh, I would recommend that to to anybody who has an interest in understanding the the history of the court and really the uh, the the role that the Constitution plays uh, in in our government. I I found it all fascinating. Mm. Thank you for that recommendation. The next question: When will we be net zero as a society? Uh, we. We, we will get there a whole lot sooner if we can get some clean energy incentives in place and uh, what was included in the Build Back Better legislation that made it through the House last year actually included a remarkable pivot away from technology-specific incentives and toward a technology-agnostic approach that would reward all clean generation uh, including nuclear starting in 2027. Uh, if we can get something like that in place, we'll get there a whole lot faster than if we don't have it. That is very interesting and something I'll have to look into because I think that's coming from the geothermal industry. One of the things we continually talk about is the fact that the lobbies for wind and solar are so much larger than the geothermal lobby and the tax incentives are in some regards we, I guess we say they are, they're disproportionately scaled because of that and, and pointing to nuclear and geothermal to baseload green energies that need to be there for the foundation of our electric grid. But all of us are, are part of that low carbon solution and that low carbon future. So why not have everybody benefit? No, that's that. That's exactly right, and I think if we can bring that sort of policy toolkit uh, to the table here, that's going to make a huge difference. Yep, that's fascinating. The last question is actually now you get to ask me a question. Okay, so you mentioned that you're sitting there in Texas. Uh, is the state of Texas doing what it needs to do to uh, prevent a repeat from the the uh, tragedy we saw just a year and a half or so ago? That is a great question, and depending on on which side of the aisle you're sitting, there either isn't a problem or they aren't doing enough. So based on those two different opinions, I would say I would say there is still a risk to the the grid security and the grid reliability simply because it doesn't seem like there is an emphasis on making a change and you don't see that push. There is either there's either a head in the sand or there is somebody screaming saying you're not doing enough. <laughs> and it's it's tough from that regard because yep. it it absolutely we need to do more and we need to fix the grid and make it more reliable. We haven't had any major issues. ERCOT is sending out reminders saying, hey, it's going to be hot out. Please turn your thermostats up. But ultimately, is that is that what we need or do we need do we need a more reliable grid? And we now are paying more. I have seen a significant increase in my electricity bill over the past three months. And if I'm paying more, I I would want to see results, meaning a more reliable grid. And I don't, I don't know, and I have not seen any hard evidence stating that that is where that money's going. 
Well, and you know, one of the challenges, of course, is you, you know, being reliant. Certainly, you've got a lot of wind down there, but there's a whole lot of natural gas as well. And you know, when when you think about a natural gas fired plant, more than half of the cost of the electricity, you know, is reflected in the price of the gas. And so, when gas gets really expensive, electricity prices go up. And of course, gas has gotten really expensive with the Russian assault on Ukraine. With nuclear, the, the price of the uranium is you know, on the order of 10% of the price of the electricity. It's a, it's a very small percentage. And so nuclear has the added benefit of being largely insulated from the types of uh, price disruptions that we've seen with other energy resources. The other thing your answer got me thinking about was, you know, I do think it's important for folks to, to remember, you don't build an electric grid to serve load on an average day. You got to build a grid that can withstand the worst that Mother Nature uh, is going to throw at it, and you know it's those really challenging times uh, in which nuclear really looks best because having something that is so robust, resilient, and can run for eighteen to twenty-four months at a time in all manner of weather conditions that makes a big difference, uh, and that's a big part of the reason why at NEI. We're seeing a lot of our companies, most of which uh, have made uh, commitments to largely or completely decarbonized by 2050 or sooner, why they're all looking to new nuclear in addition to keeping uh, in operation the nuclear they already have as a key part of making their uh, uh, meeting their energy and decarbonization pledges. Mm. Yeah, I think that is, it's a really good point and one of those things that we do forget about until it's too late about what the grid is made for and having that appreciation of a reliable, always there, resilient baseload power that is irrespective of weather conditions. John, with that, thank you very much for joining me on the show today. Before we sign off, is there anything else that you would like to say? I just want to say thank you, Joe, uh, for the opportunity today and for what you're doing. I think informing people about our energy system and the choices in front of us is uh, really essential, and I'm glad you're doing it. Well, thank you, John, and thanks again. And thank you, everyone, for joining us on this episode of the Energy Transition Solutions Podcast. If you're enjoying the show, please do me a favor, give me a five-star rating, leave a review, and share this episode with a friend. Doing these quick and easy actions will help these stories reach a wider audience. If you want to hear more great energy stories and keep up to date with the energy industry, connect with OGGN on LinkedIn or visit OGGN.com. If you're in the Houston area, go try out the Canon. Mention OGGN and they will give you a free day pass. Whenever I'm in Houston, I'm at the Canon. And it's also where we host our monthly industry mixers. Finally, if you have any questions, comments, corrections, or have a story that you would like to share, send me an email or find me on LinkedIn. And until next time, remember to keep it low carbon and high energy. Join us again next week for another low carbon, high energy story on the Energy Transition Solutions Podcast, a production of the Oil & Gas Global Network. Learn more at OGGN.com.